spent most of my life in prison Chasing a dream called justice Chasing a dream, chasing a dream Won't somebody please hear my plea Won't somebody please set me free Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams, and welcome to another special edition of Lawyer to Lawyer on Legal Talk Network. My co-host, Bob Ambrosi, is off today. Before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. Well, despite the many safeguards in our judicial system, there are many behind bars falsely accused and falsely convicted. For some, there's hope through an innocence project if their case is strong enough, but help might not arrive for decades. Joining us today is William Dillon, a man who served 28 years of a life sentence for a murder he did not commit. State of Florida set him free when DNA testing proved he was not linked to a key piece of evidence that was used to convict him. And, surprisingly, William is a singer and a songwriter. His work was inspired by his long incarceration in one of the nation's most dangerous prisons, and we're sharing it today as part of our show. Welcome, and thank you, William Dillon. Great. Great to be here. And also joining us is Seth Miller. He is one of the attorneys who helped exonerate William. Mr. Miller works for the Innocence Project of Florida, where he has dedicated himself to exonerating the innocent since 2006. Welcome to the show, Seth Miller. Thank you for having me, Craig. Well, William, can you give us a little bit of history about your situation? What year was it when you were convicted? How old were you? And what went through your head 28 years ago? or longer? Uh, I was convicted in 1981, August uh, 26th. I was arrested at the age of 20. I turned 21 and like six days later. What was going through your mind when you were, you know, you didn't commit this crime, but yet you were standing there convicted at the end of the trial? I was sad. It was truly devastating. Um, But at the same time, I didn't really give up on the justice system because I knew I hadn't done anything. And I knew eventually they wouldn't find a way to uh, get whoever was really responsible for it. Can you give us a little bit of the facts and circumstances surrounding the crime that you were alleged to have committed and, and what, why you think it was that the jury found you guilty? The facts are that a man was beaten to death, uh, a 35-year-old man was beaten to death on the beach, uh, and they were saying that I was the one that went on the beach and beat a man to death in order to rob him. And got up on the highway and hitchhiked and got in the car with another person. And why I was convicted, I believe, was just the, the faulty evidence that was brought before the, the courtroom itself. It was all uh, a fabricated sense of evidence. There was nothing real because I committed no crime and wasn't there at all. So there was no way possibly it could have any factual evidence that I committed anything. I just believe that that was the reason why I was convicted by the maliciousness of creating false evidence and maybe pushing people to say things that really wasn't true. 
Well, Seth, let's bring you into the conversation. How did you become involved with William's case? Well, you know, we became involved in the case in a, in a sort of unique way. Most of our cases come to us through folks, uh, either the inmates or their advocates, writing to us. We actually just found about Bill, about Bill's case because he had filed his own motion for DNA testing, and there was a news story about it. And we have Google alerts and things like that to keep us abreast of those sorts of things. Uh, when we found out about it, um, it, it was apparent to us from the reporting that there were some clear indications of actual innocence in the case. We knew DNA testing could potentially resolve the, the issue. So we reached out to uh, Bill and uh, the public defender who had been appointed to him, and uh, we were able to get involved in the case that way and lend our uh, expertise uh, to get the DNA testing and, and eventually get him out. In terms of the, the, the factors that led to his conviction. I mean, there's a number of them, as Bill said, there was a number of pieces of fabricated evidence, but ultimately um, the case boiled down to a few key points. Um, There was a a woman who uh, Bill had known who said that she had saw him um, around the body near the time of the crime. And that was a fabrication. She actually had sexual relations with the investigating uh, uh, detective. So, I mean, obviously that was a real problem for the, pro- for the prosecution in the case. Um, there was a, an eyewitness, the person who picked up the perpetrator right after the crime, who was actually legally blind and, but then made an identification of Bill, uh, at the trial. There was, uh, some fabricated evidence or fraudulent evidence in terms of a dog handler that was used to connect Bill to key pieces of evidence and connect him to the crime scene. And that dog handler um, had has been exposed as a fraud and a charlatan. And also there was a jailhouse informant who, who got favors in order to testify that Bill had confessed to him and others in um, a jail cell or in a jail cell, like a holding cell uh, when he was in the county jail, which was also a fabrication. Um, they sort of just threw this all out to the jury, hoping to get a conviction, and they did. William, when you were uh, released, what did you do to seek justice for what you had gone through, or did you? No, I I, I really didn't uh, to seek justice inside myself because I was very um, caught between the fact of being wrongfully convicted and having the emotion of of finally being proven innocent to something I had fought for years in my mind, if if nothing else, that to get the, um, to get released. I think for me, it was just the gratification of, of being released from it. It was such a big weight lifted off me that the anger and the frustrations of, of being wrongfully convicted were justified, I guess, in a sense now that I was free and it was sort of like a happy elation. And hopefully that they would come to recognize who had actually committed the crimes and the basic sense of my mind was that I just wanted to be free. I deserve it. How did you get through 28 years knowing that you were innocent? It was extremely hard. Uh, it was extremely hard. I was assaulted the very first day I was in prison. I was sent to Florida State Prison. I'd never been in prison before. And if anybody knows Florida Prison, it's the worst prison that you can actually be in at the time. It was extremely dangerous. There were stabbings and killings all the time and assaults every day, every morning when the doors popped. And I got through it, I think, from the fact that just the, my constitution was I kept trying to push myself and say that I can do this. And, you know, eventually they're going to find out. And granted, though, through the years, I lost I lost that faith and favor, and you know, because I had to live in my environment. I had to survive. 
I certainly didn't want them to kill me or end up in that graveyard as a convicted murderer. Well, Seth, you, you mentioned earlier that you had found William's case. Uh, having myself worked in a legal clinic, I imagine you get a lot of requests from people for assistance. Describe how that works in your organization. How can someone get a hold of you? Well, anyone can write us, email us, call us, fax us. Uh, but ultimately, we get about 1,800 pieces of correspondence a year, about 1,000 of which are new requests for assistance. And then some cases come to us through referrals like uh, like Bill's case or we see it on the news or read about it in the uh, legal journals. And we have a very stringent, difficult process to, to wean those cases down from about 1,000 to about 10 to 12 that we take each year. And you know, for cases that have a potential DNA component, it's really an objective criteria. We're looking for cases that have biological evidence that exists today um, at some agency that if we were to test it, it would be indicative of the perpetrator's identity. And then if we were to you know, compare it to our client's DNA and exclude them as a contributor of that DNA, then of course they would be exonerated. That's the template that we used in Bill's case to test DNA that was found in the wearer areas of a bloody T-shirt that was left behind by the perpetrator uh, in the car in the truck in which he was hitchhiking in, and uh, what it showed is that from the armpits and the collar of the T-shirt, there was another male's DNA there that wasn't Bill's, and we've come to learn now, uh, many years later, that it actually matched um, someone who was a suspect even at the time uh, when Bill was being uh, investigated for this case that the prosecution knew about, or I'm sorry, the police knew about, and they just sort of pocketed it in their file and never followed up on it. And so here they had a link, uh, a lead to the actual perpetrator back in 1981, and instead they prosecuted Bill, um, only to find out later that this other person was linked through DNA testing. Bill, have you, uh, have you received any kind of an apology from the prosecuting attorney or the police, or have you communicated with them at all? No, I've, I haven't heard any kind of apology. As a matter of fact, for three years after my release, they were still trying to tell people that I was, uh, had escaped their conviction somehow through legal battles or some sense of whatever it was. Only through uh, CODIS DNA testing did they actually get a hit on somebody else. And another person... Uh, that was in the file actually confessed after some push by the police that four of them had actually committed the crime to some degree. And and as far as an apology, the governor of the state of Florida, Governor Rick Scott, did apologize to me on national TV. But the prosecutors and the police have not. They've denied any wrongdoing. How's that make you feel? Um, I feel okay with it because I can't live with it. You know, they they took already took. Um, almost 28 years of my life, and um, I'm not going to keep letting them take it from me, you know, regardless. It makes me feel that somebody recognized the fact that I was innocent, and that's yeah. that's the gratifying point, that just being released in freedom was, was most gratifying than anything. You are a wise man not to let them take any more of your life. What was your life like before you were sentenced to prison? What, what did you do? What were your hobbies? What kinds of things did, uh, interested you? And, and describe for us how you became a singer and a songwriter. My life in 1981, I was a young 20, 21-year-old kid, and uh, I was just chasing the girls and trying to enjoy life and not really knowing what life was. You know, I was constituted. I was being scouted by the Detroit Tigers, and life was all over the place for me. I was just that kind of uh, uh, kid. I wasn't bothering anybody. I was having fun, and 
I really, I really didn't hunker down and say, this is what I want to do or want to be. I was everywhere. And as far as, um, as far as I'm singing songwriting, I, that basically came from, I've always been a singer, you know, to myself. I've been in school and sang and I've sang publicly in school, different songs and duets with girls and stuff. And in prison, I, I wrote Black Robes and Lawyers um, initially when I was first um, attacked within the first couple of years. Uh, it began to evolve as a poem, as a statement to the system about what they had done and it was nobody was really listening to me. And it was helping gratifying to me that I could write this and just so it would be remembered because at that point in my life, I didn't think anybody was ever going to hear or read the words, but it was gratifying to me to write it. And I basically came out thinking at, at my last institution, I was uh, allowed to learn to play the guitar. They had an, a couple acoustic guitars and stuff. And eventually I worked my way into getting that job. And I sat there and tried to learn to play the guitar and had other guys that knew how to play teach me. And I came out thinking, you know what? All these little songs and things that I've written, maybe I can put them down to music and uh, have them recorded and make a CD. And I did. Uh, Jim Tulio out of Chicago, Evanston, Illinois, he, uh, he gladly called up the Florida Innocent Project and said, hey, I'd like to give a William a shot at recording a CD. Excellent. What's the name of the CD? It's called Black Robes and Lawyers. Well, Seth, you know, you mentioned that you have to sort through 1,800 applications a year. And I'm sure, as you mentioned as well, you as a group find some on the Internet. But it's a phenomenal list that you have to sort through. And, and how does that affect the Innocence Project and the people that work for it? And especially you knowing now that, you know, William's life was taken away from him and he'll never get it back. And, and there are other ones out there like him, and, but you can't help them all. How do you sort through that? Well, it's a daunting, it's a really, really daunting task. I mean, you know, if, if I could give a metaphor, it's truly like needle in a haystack type work. But the important thing is that the folks who are writing to us, almost all are poor, um, have no means, um, indigent, in prison. Many of them have life sentences without the possibility of parole. And, and if not us, there's no one who's going to come after us to, you know, to give their case a diligent and thorough review. So we, we take the job very seriously, understanding that when we reject someone and we do reject 96% of the requests that come through the door, that um, that may be it for that person. Um, and and so, so that's hard. On the, on the flip side of that, when we do take a case and we litigate it, and sometimes it takes many years to achieve success, when we do reach that point where you know, we're walking someone like, William or any of our other clients out of prison, it's a special experience for that person and their family, but it's also this amazing experience for us. You know, we, I liken it to giving someone life. Um, so many of these folks are going to die in prison if we're not able to get them out. And here we are with the opportunity to give them life and hand them over back to their um, families who, who, who they ripped apart from many years earlier. And that's, that's a, an experience that not only puts an indelible imprint on the lives of our clients, the people who we help, but um, we, the people who are involved with it on our end, are forever changed uh, by that experience. Uh, I, this is an, ex an experience that will uh, affect the trajectory of my life and how I uh, view the importance of the everyday experiences that I get to take advantage of and um, you know, the time I spend with my family and my son. And, and so 
um, it's, it's, it's a gratifying, important, formative experience for us as lawyers and, and staff here at the Innocence Project of Florida, and we're just so happy and uh, privileged to be able to do it. Thank you, and, and congratulations. Well, before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Hi, my name is Kate Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and returning with us is William Dillon and Seth Miller. And Seth, before the break, you were talking about what it meant to you to uh, really have an understanding of what it's like to set someone free. But there are many people in the country who can't imagine, given what they perceive to be the jury system and the safeguards that are there, that there would ever be a false conviction. What are the most common reasons for false convictions? And and how do people wrap their minds around this? There are a number of causes of wrongful convictions. And the reason that we know what they are is because we've had exonerations and been able to study the factors that led to those uh, wrongful convictions. Um, the leading cause of wrongful convictions is uh, eyewitness misidentification, which accounts for about 75% um, of the wrongful convictions that where folks have eventually been exonerated. In all, in 75% of those cases, uh, there was at least one eyewitness or victim who misidentified the person who was wrongfully convicted. Um, it's a huge problem, uh, and one that we're trying you know desperately to address through policy reforms. But you know, you have issues. Like false confessions. No one believes that someone would confess to a crime that they didn't commit, yet we know that there are all kinds of reasons that innocent people uh, can, you know, will admit to crimes they didn't commit. Some because it's you know, beneficial for them to do so to avoid a worse off sentence, but also some folks just are vulnerable and are more prone to, to falsely confess. And we've seen a number of cases like this in Florida and around the country where folks who are mentally retarded, um, uh, children, um, who, again, are prone to suggestiveness, uh, confess to crimes and are later proven innocent by DNA testing. We have cases with jailhouse informants. We call them snitches. Uh, Bill Dillon had one in his case. Um, a, num- a number of our cases have them where folks get favors um, to testify that the, the, the prosecution suspect uh, confessed to the crime. And, and this is erroneous, unreliable testimony. I think one of the other main things that's that's coming about now as we advance in our understanding of science is that certain forensic procedures that were used to connect people to crimes in the 80s, 90s, or even a decade ago are now being outstripped by more advanced science and understanding 
of how different sciences and forensic methods work. And it's causing us to look back at these old cases and rethink um, whether evidence that was used to connect someone to a crime, if it's the main evidence in the case, may have led to a, a wrongful conviction. So uh, we have uh, a nice, and that's not all of them, we have a nice plate of potential causes of wrongful convictions to help us identify um, cases. And we're constantly trying to rectify these miscarriages of justice, not only through litigation, looking backwards, but also trying to reform the criminal justice system to ameliorate these causes and prevent wrongful convictions going forward. It's interesting that you identify eyewitness testimony as the number one reason that people are falsely convicted. Our law school criminal law professor performed an exercise that in the beginning of the class that none of the students knew was being performed. He had a student, a graduate assistant, come in to the room, say something to the professor, and then turn around and leave. And nobody paid attention to it because it was just a common everyday occurrence and it wasn't out of the ordinary. At the end of the class, the professor told us what sit down and and write down what it is that you remember about the person that came in in the beginning of the class. A significant number of the people couldn't even remember that someone came in. No one, no one person in the class got every characteristic about that person. Male, female, color of hair, color of shirt, color of pants, carrying a clipboard, not carrying a clipboard. Nobody got it all right. So it's certainly understandable how that could happen. Well, William, I wanted to ask you a question about, you mentioned, or actually Seth mentioned, that Florida Innocence Project found you as a consequence of a news item that had been written about your motion to get DNA testing. What prompted you to file that motion and describe to us how that occurred? The motion that I filed was in 2006. Uh, A man had approached me in the library of the prison, and he asked me if I'd ever had a DNA test. And I told him that I'd been in prison almost 26 years, and there probably wasn't anything DNA testable in my case. And he said, that doesn't matter. He said, just file the motion, fill it out, and tell him that the evidence is in the sheriff's department. So I eventually looked it up and went through some cases and found out that uh, another individual in Bavard County, Wilton Dedge, had also been exonerated through uh, processes. And it was also a dog handler case from John Preston. And I began to see some correlation between the two. So I, I filed the DNA motion and put all that information in my motion and sent it off. And within a matter of four months, the judge uh, ordered the prosecutors to show cause and they seem to have forgotten about me because their their show cause was really mixed up and confused about all the evidence and everything. And I rebuttaled that, and the judge ordered me back into the county jail. And in the process of being put in the county jail, a news media that had done Wilton Dedge's news media case, which was unknowns to me, I didn't know it at the time, called me and asked me for an interview and I told my family and friends about the interview, and they didn't want me to do the interview, thinking that it would cause the prosecution to get mad and stuff and really throw off my case. And I did the interview. I wanted everyone to know everything I was dealing with. And the man, um, Dan Billow from Channel 2, said, Mr. Dillon, if everything you say is true, you could be a free man because I'm the one that did the Wilton Dedge interview. And. I really like the information I'm hearing from you. I hope all works well for you. So that's that's really how it took off. By putting me in there and the Florida Innocent Project was able to pick it up because of DNA mentioned. Well, Seth, 
that's the handoff to you. What happened after that? We got involved with the case and and worked with uh, local counsel. It was the uh, Mike Perolo from the public defender's office, a wonderful lawyer down in Brevard County, and we uh, amended. Uh, Bill's motion that he filed um, to sort of beef it up a little bit. He did a great job getting the ball rolling, and we perfected it. And from that point, we're able to get um, DNA testing ordered out to a private lab in Texas. And it took them about six months to work on the case. And uh, in August 2008, they released a report showing, again, that that Bill was excluded as a contributor of this important male DNA that was in, you know, in this area of that this very important piece of evidence, this T-shirt that was worn by the perpetrator that had the victim's blood on it and was left um, you know, in the car uh, that he hitchhiked in. And um, again, it was indicative of the wearer of that shirt. Um, so we filed a motion based on that DNA evidence to vacate his conviction. And, you know, the prosecution hem and hawed a little bit. They were a little bit annoyed. You know, they, how do we know that this proves innocence and all of that? You know, they were they were sticking to their guns, um, but the upshot of this is they eventually agreed um, in November to vacate. The, this is November two thousand eight to vacate his conviction, and then they had some time to decide whether they were going to retry him or not. And um, just a month later, in December two thousand eight, they agreed to drop the charges, and that uh, officially led to his exoneration. So, so Bill uh, was released in a wonderful evening. Uh, in November 2008, and a month later, uh, that was it. That was the end of it. He was a, a, truly a free man. Bill, tell us what it was like from the time you got the news to the time you walked out of jail and what it was like to breathe air that didn't have bars in front of it. Initially, uh, October, I mean, uh, November 14th, 2008, I was taken to uh, the county jail courthouse didn't know what was taking place at the point, and they pulled me in and says, uh, we are going to vacate your sentence. I'm talking to my lawyers now, Mike Perlow, who, in fact, and great kudos, is an awesome lawyer. He really pushed hard, uh, just like the Innocent Project. Uh, they definitely pushed hard to get this free. And at that point, I'm, I honestly didn't believe it because I, I firmly believe the prosecution was going to do something. When they said they were vacating my sentence, you know, it was like... Total, I mean, jaw was building up, but at the same time, my mind was telling me, don't get too excited because they're going to try to do something. They know they've done wrong here, and they're not going to just let you walk away from this. That was my point. And then then three or four days later, I had a bail hearing, and they released me on November 18th under bail for $2,000. I think it was something like $200,000 bail or something. I'm not sure exactly what the bail was. It was kind of in a... In a zone there at that point, I was really exhilarated to be free and be pointing. I was disappointed that it didn't work out the way I had dreamed it, that I was just going to walk free, but they were going to put this monitor on my leg. So, But I was still free, and I walked out on November 18th that night feeling like the angels were carrying me down there. I was just totally lost. I was almost dizzy with the euphoria. It's something that you can probably never experience but one time in your life. And from November 18th, uh, to December 10th, I wore a little thing on my leg that says I was still a possible suspect to a murder that I had nothing whatsoever to do with. December 10th, they faxed over a piece of paper to my lawyer saying that they were dropping all charges. And which was, he called me on the phone and says, you can go take that monitor off because they're dropping all charges against you and everything. They're not going to retry you. 
And I thought it was really great that the fact that if they didn't retry me by Valentine's Day, that I was going to be free anyway at that point. And I thought it was kind of a beautiful thing that Valentine's Day was the day that they were going to not be able to try me anymore because my lawyer had filed a fast and speedy trial. Well, congratulations. I'm sure that that was, a, 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 as you said, a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Well, we've reached, just about reached the end of our program. It's time to wrap up with your final thoughts and get your contact information. So, Seth, I'll hand it over to you. You can reach the Innocence Project of Florida to learn more about our project or seek assistance by going to our website, www.floridainnocence.org, and that's all spelled out, all one word. And there you can find our blog, and we update every day and uh, information about wrongful convictions, about uh, Florida exonerees like William Dillon, who you've heard here today, and and keep track of what's going on with Innocence Project of Florida. We we hope you uh, visit our website. And Seth, I forgot to ask you in the in the show, but what does it cost for this type of DNA testing? The cost depends on on the case and how many samples we need to test. In William Dillon's case, we spent. Uh, about $16,000 on DNA testing because of the number of samples we needed to test and the type of DNA testing that we needed to do. In other cases, uh, we've spent as little as uh, three or $4,000. Um, but, you know, you pay per sample, and if you have to have a, a hearing and bring an expert in, um, it can really drive up the cost. The, the big thing is that um, none of our clients pay even a dime. We pay for all of it, and we take a lot of pride in in knowing that the folks we represent, regardless of what kind of means they come from, um, they get the, the highest quality representation uh, um, because they're innocent. So innocent people are getting treated um, the very same regardless of their means. We take a lot of pride in that. Great. Thank you so much for your work. And William, uh, we'd like to wrap up with your final thoughts and your contact information for people to reach out to you. And, and particularly, I'm interested to hear about how music got you through prison. Well, music got me through prison. Just being able to express myself more than anything. It's sort of that sense of I'm speaking in the courtroom and I testified for myself and I was telling the truth and nobody seemed to be listening to me. So music was that expression where I could sing out and write out. It was the same thing with writing. It was an expression of eventually somebody will read this and, and it will be some some gratification in it, but singing was the same way. I just want to thank uh, uh, the Innocent Project of Florida and Mike Perillo and the many people who uh, supported me. And even after my release for for years uh, of constant hounding me and coming to my home and investigating this and going through changes and, and just almost literally terrorizing me again to the point to where I got to the feeling that I was still convicted of a crime that I had been released in a, of a point. Um, I'm on Facebook, uh, William Michael Dillon. I'm, I appreciate it if everybody hit it up and liked the page. And you can contact me through the, the Innocent Project of Florida at any time. I'm sure they'd be glad to, um, to help out in any way. And, and anything I can sponsor for wrongful conviction uh, or, or participate in, I'd really like to. Uh, that's my whole agenda, and I firmly believe that that may have come to a great thing because I don't know how I was able to speak at this point until I was released. I just felt this overpowering sense of, you know, instead of getting angry about it, why don't you just talk about it and teach people about how this stuff really takes place? 
Great. Well, thank you very much, William, for being on the show and Seth Miller as well. This has been a great discussion. That brings us to the end of our show in this special edition of Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. Days move on. Sun goes down. This old world goes round and round. What you give is what you give. But for some, ain't nothing left. Try as you might to conceive, some never hear. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.